Morning. Morning, thank you. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds. It's September 14th, 2016. And um, I don't know why Network 2 Access is on the screen there, but hopefully it won't bug you too much. So welcome to Grand Rounds. I, um, I, I have reminders that this Saturday is um, the Chad Storybook Ball in Manchester, Manchester Community College. Thanks to our uh, corporate partners and sponsors. There are actually some open table seats. There are open seats at the event that are free. So if you have an interest in attending a lovely occasion with really an amazing uh, display of, of these tables, each decorated in the theme of a children's book, uh, let me or Sharon Brown know. You can sort of be like in the Oscars. You can be one of those uh, seat fillers. But you won't be asked to step out um, before or after commercials. You can certainly participate. Sunday is, um, Sunday is an, another important occasion. On Sunday at 2 o'clock at David's house, we'll have our annual memorial service to uh, remember those children uh, who, who died in our care over the past year. So that's at David's house at 2. And some of you may have noticed that there is long lines up in the East Mall on the fifth floor. It is flu vaccine season yet again. So um, let's get our 100% as we, as we often do. Uh, yesterday, many of you might have attended in person or in, online Dr. Weinstein's town hall. Um, I, I think he talked a little bit, but maybe not a ton, about how we can innovate and improve our value uh, through innovation, and, and that being a, an important way that we can help do the performance improvement that we need. I know we can do this because we've done it before. And an example that just happened this weekend, I don't see many from the ICN. I, I, I see Laura, who I invoked last week, actually, when you weren't here, Laura. We have to congratulate you on your receiving, I don't know if you've received it yet, your 40-year pin. Congratulations, Laura Cogswell. And the ICN along with, uh, with Dion and Barbara. So, so the ICN, a number of years ago, tr uh, transformed themselves to be able to send two-person transport teams on occasion for appropriate babies, consisting of a nurse and a respiratory therapist, uh, uh, in order to decrease the burden of having to identify a provider. Uh, some of us might remember the days when we were uh, here on call and we signed up for transport call and got paid and hoped that we didn't have to go on a helicopter ride which Nina always seemed to have to do, but I never did. Um, so two-person teams, less costly. And one of those teams went down to Concord over the weekend, um, uh, at some point recently over the weekend, to pick up a 10-day-old who was actually going to probably come to our inpatient unit. Um, while there, the, the, the folks at Concord said, stop right there. We have a 25, 26-weeker delivering precipitously. We need your help with that baby. Come get the 10-day-old lady, so 10-day-old baby later. So the team that was there fortuitously um, stabilized that baby with the nurse and the therapist, lines, intubation, pneumothorax, you name it, and brought that baby back um, in good stead. So uh, innovation that our teams can do with high-quality oversight and training, an example of, of our ICN stepping up. And I wish more of them were here to thank them. But if you see them over the course of the day, uh, count it as a score. Um, with that, we transition to that hospitalist service. And Dr. Ralston will introduce uh, one of another of her colleagues nationally who she's asked to join us today. 
Thanks, Keith. Um, I'm really pleased to, to be able to introduce Mike Coster, a friend of mine from Hasbro Children's and Brown. And I'll give you a little context for this uh, to, for this talk so that you kind of understand. Annually, um, we have a conference of pediatric hospitalists, and um, someone, actually two someones, are generally chosen to give a presentation on the most meaningful clinical articles uh, that, that are likely to impact uh, hospital medicine. And so you could like Rip Van Winkle all year, and if you're awake for this one hour, you know what, uh, what you're supposed to know for the year so it's a very uh, it's a very high stakes uh, uh, talk it's a, a plenary talk in front of a thousand of your closest friends um, Mike gave this talk this year and uh, um, Mike's known for his um, excellent sense of humor and, uh, and, and, and it was pretty hilarious. So we were lucky to get him to drive um, up uh, from Providence to, to give this talk to us. And um, without further ado, Mike Coster. Great. Well, thanks a lot for that wonderful introduction. And um, of course, this talk has, has a, a lifespan, right? Because it's the top articles in the last year or so. So I really appreciate the opportunity to uh, present again. And of course, I have to thank my friend Michelle Long, who was my co-presenter at uh, PHM this year. So no disclosures. We're going to review uh, top articles. So if that, let's see, that may not. Uh, project very well here on the white screen, but just last year alone there, there were 177,000 articles just using a pediatric mesh term. So it really takes a lot of effort to try to uh, get through all of those things. And obviously, how can you stay up to date when there's that many articles published in pediatric every year? So I want to start with actually what I consider um, a, the saga of allergy. So um, we're going to look at basically how, we're, uh, how we understand tolerance and allergy differently now. So this is a study from the New England Journal that actually was a really landmark article early last year that looked at uh, peanut allergy and exposure to young kids early in life. So. In the 1990s, as, as allergy to peanuts increased, the AAP said, you know what, we need to avoid peanuts in both pregnant women and young kids. And in 2000, they made a recommendation for that. Uh, what happened was uh, allergies went up. So this was a non-evidence-based recommendation. And in June of last year, the AAP actually cited this LEAP study and suggested we should actually be using early introduction. So this is a randomized controlled trial. It looked at kids who actually have eczema in egg allergies, so at-risk kids, and they were randomized to either eating peanuts or not eating peanuts. Um, th those kids who had a skin prick test, so there were kids that had no reaction to that, kids who had a one to four millimeter reaction. Kids over four millimeter reaction were excluded to thought to be too high risk for the study, and they were randomized to either not eat peanuts or eat six grams of peanuts per week. Um, evaluation of the allergy was done at, at five years of age. What did they find? They looked at about 530 kids. They saw 80% relative risk reduction with 14% absolute reduction. And the number needed to treat was seven kids to avoid one allergy. So you can see here in the avoidance group, the allergy was 17%. But in kids who were actually eating peanuts, the, uh, the risk of the, the rate of, aller of allergy and allergic reaction was only 3%. So this clearly the impact here is that early introduction of peanuts and high risk infants 
sentence lowers your peanut allergy. There's going to be fewer anaphylaxis admissions if we uh, if we spread this across the country and, and, and do this well. Um, it doesn't completely nullify it. Remember, some of those higher-risk kids were excluded. And of course, it wasn't zero. It was 3%. Um, but it, in, in this study, they also were, these kids were given peanuts under the auspice of an allergist. That may overwhelm our, I know at least at Hasbro, we don't have a lot of allergists, so that would definitely overwhelm them. What's really great about this study, the reason I call it a saga, is just this year, a couple of months ago, they published what was called the Leap On study. So they took these, um, they took these, so it's the same group, they took these same kids, and what they did was they had them avoid eating peanuts for one, for one year, and then they checked for allergy one year after that. And what they found was there were, there were about three new allergies in each group, but the tolerance was retained. So really the impact here is that um, not only can you, when you give peanuts early, do you have less allergy, but you sustain that tolerance to the allergy even uh, after a year. So obviously you need longer periods of time. Uh, some kids were sneaking in some peanuts during that time period, right? So it's not a perfect study, but their per protocol analysis was also powered well enough to detect that difference. And the bottom line is exposure to peanuts early prevents allergy and it sustains tolerance. Um, avoiding peanuts to avoid an allergy just wasn't a good idea. If we stick with kids, uh, infants here, uh, vitamin D, give those babies a break. We'll look at giving hyper uh, doses of vitamin D to breastfeeding moms. So this is a study from pediatrics by Dr. Hollis et al. that looked at um, giving maternal uh, dyads uh, who are breast, exclusively breastfeeding high doses of vitamin D. So we always think of breast milk as complete, right? Well, except for vitamin D. And that's been a recommendation for decades that, uh, that kids and breastfeeding moms should be taking vitamin D. But despite that decades-old recommendation, only about 1 to 13% of, of uh, infants actually take vitamin D. So not many people are doing it. And small studies have actually shown that maternal vitamin D does get into breast milk. So so this was a randomized controlled, double-blind, comparative effectiveness trial across two sites with exclusive breastfeeding women. Uh, it was done over seven months. There were 334 dyads, and they were randomized to either receive this, the standard of care, which is 400 units to mom and 400 units to infant, or 6,400 units to mom and placebo to the baby. Uh, they looked at some baseline labs in, bo in both um, the kids and the mom, as well as looking at vitamin D levels over a couple of different visits. At four and seven months. And you know, if you look at those numbers there, the 110 to 47 and the 106 to 48, there's a lot of attrition here. Either mom stopped exclusively breastfeeding, they moved out of the uh, area. Um, so there was a bit of attrition in this study. What did they find? So if you look at just the left-hand column, that's just the maternal level of vitamin D. It just shows you that if you're taking 400 versus 6,400 units, your level's much higher with 6,400. But, but the, so it's sort of a no-brainer there. But um, if you look at the infant levels here, um, and with the, that yellow line there is sort of the goal of where you want the infant uh, vitamin D level to be. Across those visits, we saw um, in both arms the, the sort of standard treatment as well as this um, hyper vitamin D levels to the uh, vitamin D units to the mom, we saw basically no difference between those levels in the infants. So what this study tells us is that maternal supplementation is an option. And especially when you think about parent preference, you think about compliance, uh, if you work closely with OBGYNs, moms have good relationships with them. Um, while this dose seems a little bit high, um, there's actually evidence uh, that it's, it's, it's pretty safe. And this is clearly evidence that it's a 
effective in getting that vitamin D level in the kids up higher. And we'll probably see more studies looking at what that dose should be. So choosing wisely is a huge campaign. There's over 70 different um, uh, groups that have now put out choose wisely. Uh, recommendations. So this year we got it for, for pediatric, for infants, for newborns. And so this was from Timmy Ho uh, and his group and published in Pediatrics August last year. Uh, this is sort of what it looks like in print. If you're familiar with the Choose Wisely campaign, you'll see those things. If we just break it down, what we see, the first recommendation is don't use anti-reflux medicines for GERD, even in, even in preemies who have uh, A's and D's. So antibiotics beyond 48 hours for rule outs, don't do it. If you're still doing 72 hours, cut it out. Pneumograms uh, at discharge for apnea prematurity or um, apnea and D cells, uh, not, not to be done. Daily chest x-rays for intubation, avoid them. MRIs for discharge on preemies, I didn't even know this was actually a thing, but don't do them. So. Turns out uh, babies actually prefer mom over morphine. So this we're going to look at neonatal abstinence syndrome, which is really a downstream problem of the opioid epidemic in our country. And this is a study actually from your center here that was published in pediatrics and looking at basically rooming in for infants and what it does in terms of uh, costs and impact on treatment for neonatal abstinence syndrome. So in the last you know 15 years has been a marked rise in neonatal abstinence syndrome. It's about 22,000 kids born every year, and that's that's almost six per thousand births. Infants uses up. Uh, Infants with neonatal abstinence syndrome actually use 20% of the NICU days, which is one of the biggest costs in pediatric healthcare. And in fact, they have probably, oh, I've seen numbers as high as 150 to $250,000 more than the average neonate, uh, but that average somewhere is about $93,000. So this is a single site multidisciplinary QI project where they use consecutive PDSA cycles, over 11 of them. They train nurses on the scoring. They actually standardize the docs to their interpretation of scores, and they involve parents. When we think about family patient-centered care. When should we involve families? Always, early, and often. And they looked at their outcomes via statistical process control, which I'm not going to get into any of the real uh, statistical details of any of these papers, but uh, it was really well done. They saw, what did, they, what did you guys find? You found that morphine decreased from 46 to 27 percent. That's cumulative doses went down from over 13 to 6.6 .6 milligrams, a decrease in adjuvant medicines used for NAS, uh, more uh, phenobarbital down from uh, 13 to 2%. And while the average length of stay for neonatal abstinence syndrome is about 23 days, so the institution was already doing well at 17, that number uh, length of stay dropped to 12. So uh, they saw a marked decrease in the cost from over $19,000 to $8,755. And there were no adverse events or 30-day readmit which, as you know, is, is a, a reasonable marker for this hospital since it's the only regional nursery in the area. This is just a really nice, there's a lot of these run charts in the paper, but this is just a really nice run chart um, that shows cost over time. So if you follow that purple line, you can see the, the two different um, uh, center line shifts there. So as you march through all of these different PDSA cycles, we see that we get nurse training, we get the doc standardizing things. You do occasionally see outliers that just cause a special cause analysis, makes you think about what your next cycle should be. And the rooming in is where we saw those center line shifts, so babies prefer their bombs over morphine, and the putting though is probably really in a lot of that pre-work as well. 
So there's a lot of studies out there showing improvement in length of stay and adoption of protocols. So it doesn't matter so much whether you use morphine or use a different medication. But if you standardize it, we've seen that that improves uh, outcomes in kids. But rooming in was really the messaging here in this study. And what it showed was it definitely caused markedly decreased NICU days. And um, one of the things I think to watch for is with Ondansetron, potentially using that in moms even prior to delivery to prevent neonatal abstinence syndrome. So watch out for that study. Hold that opioid prescription, right? So we'll take a look at adolescents and the problem with misuse. So this is from Pediatrics in October last year by um, Dr. Meech et al. And they looked at uh, basically adolescent uh, misuse of opioids. So as I the epidemic, opioid use in the country. And in fact, it's the first time that the census report had showed uh, increase in mortality amongst middle-aged uh, folks. And so it's, it's a big deal. In the last 10 years, we've never seen that before. And a, and a lot of that's been attributed to opioid deaths. So guidelines, as you know, here at the Atlas, uh, the, the Dartmouth Atlas report with back pain is it's such, it's such a high-risk drug, you shouldn't even use it for back pain. So, uh, But little's really known about opioid misuse in adolescents. So this is a really beautiful prospective cohort study looking at an exposure to an, a prescription to morphine and an outcome of misuse afterwards. It was a really well-represented national sample of over 6,000 uh, seniors in high school, and then, and then they were surveyed again at 23 years of age. And the main outcome here was, did they or did they not misuse opioids? Uh, they looked at a bunch of other predictors as well as, um, did you ever use drugs before, other illicit drugs? And what was your attitude towards illegal drug use? So they found that if you had had a prescription, it was an independent risk factor. So 33% increase likelihood that you are going to use or, or misuse opioids in the future. And actually what they found was interesting was that the association was highest in kids who had no drug use or who had a strong disapproval of illegal drug use. So clinicians really need to weigh the risks and benefits of opioid prescriptions in adolescents. As a hospitalist, it's hard sometimes to parse out the kid who's having abdominal pain from stress versus the kid who has an appendicitis who may need morphine. And I think one of the things that we can at least take home message with this is stop providing 30-day prescriptions of opioids at discharge. Think about three days. Think about just three doses of it rather than sending somebody home with a large prescription. In addition to that, it's a real slippery slope. So there was an, another study in pediatrics that looked at misuse of opioids as a predictor of use of IV heroin. And, uh, and as you know, that's bad. Right? <laughs> so sleep scratch, sleep scratch, disruption of the cycle. We're going to take a look at melatonin use in both clinical as well as sleep uh, issues in kids with atopic dermatitis. So this is a study from Dr. Chang et al. about um, the use of melatonin in, um, from, uh, uh, from this year. So we know kids have sleep disturbance in atopic dermatitis, over half of them, 55%. A lot of times Benadryl's used. It's not necessarily for the itch. It's really to knock those kids out at night because they have a lot of trouble falling asleep. And what's interesting is these researchers found that not only did, were the nocturnal melatonin levels low in atopic dermatitis, but melatonin also happens to be an anti-inflammatory. 
This is a beautiful study. This is a randomized control, double-blind, placebo-controlled with crossover, okay? It doesn't get better than that. It was over six months. Probably one of the limitations is it's a single center uh, of a homogenous population in Taiwan. But they looked at kids 1 to 18 years of age, and they looked at uh, kids who had sleep disturbance and who had reasonable, moderate atopic dermatitis. They gave them 3 milligrams of melatonin at night for four weeks, and they used a sort of objective scoring system for, um, for, for eczema severity. There were 48 kids randomized, and almost 80% completed the crossover, and there was a two-week washout period between that. And uh, what they found was uh, that the clinical index dropped by nine points, which is almost a 10% improvement in clinical outcomes. Uh, the sleep onset decreased by 21 minutes, so the kids got sleep much faster. And there were no adverse events, because it's melatonin, right? <laughs> so what did they find? So they found, actually, both the the Index went down. If you look at the, uh, if you look at B here, it didn't matter what the treatment order was with the crossover. You still saw improvement, and you saw the kids uh, falling asleep. So everything went down. You know, every 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 aspect of what they looked at was improved. So melatonin is safe and effective. It decreases disease severity by about 10%. It improves sleep latency onset. Um, we talked about the limitation. How many of you are wearing something that measures like your heart rate or how far you walk or those kinds of things? So what was really neat about the study too is they used those actinographic devices like the Fitbit, right, to uh, help determine that sleep latency and sleep onset. So I'm really interested to see how else we can use these devices in research. Juice, it's what's for gastro. So uh, we're going to look at using dilute juice versus an electrolyte rehydration solution and mild uh, dehydration. This was a study, a great study in May this year um, from Dr. Friedman et al. about the use of preferred juices like or preferred fluids versus electrolyte solutions. Um, so we know we recommend Pedialyte or other electrolyte um, uh, solutions to patients, but they may be uh, expensive, cost prohibitive, and maybe people don't have a lot of experience using them. Um, they could be unfamiliar. So could preferred juices work? So this may be something, you know, as a practice, you may already do this. So this is a good practice. Um, uh, it, it's something that supports your practice of this. Um, this is a randomized control uh, study as well. They looked at kids 6 to 60 months, mainly minimal dehydration. And they had this half-strength uh, apple juice or preferred liquid versus an apple juice-flavored um, electrolyte solution. And then they go home. And they looked at out one of the major outcomes was a seven-day failure to stay well. What did they find? So of the 644 kids, apple juice had less IV, so 17 versus 25%. And there were no differences in hospitalizations or vomiting and diarrhea. In fact, if you look at this slide, it's kind of hard to follow, but if you look at the main um, solid line there, you see even the older you are, the more likely you are to prefer apple juice. So the bottom is you favor apple juice, the top is you f the electrolyte solution is better. So even the, so the older and the more you know, refined your taste buds are, the more likely you are to prefer uh, a, a half-strength juice. It's cheaper, it's better tasting. Let them drink juice. It's, you know, it's, it's like the one time we're going to offer juice to kids as pediatricians, right? Um, there are some limits with this. You know, you certainly, it was a high SES uh, um, group, and so I think in terms of outcome and follow-ups, there's a lot of uh, potential limitations to this study. 
I'd be happy to ultrasound you. So looking at CT and appendicitis, right, uh, versus ultrasound. So this is from um, Dr. Butcher in, in August last year, looking at the overall trends in CT versus ultrasound. So a lot of people felt that ultrasound, based on the user dependency, is inferior to CAT scan. We also know that CAT scans increase your risk, especially abdominal ones, of cancer by 1%, and that's a cumulative risk over time. So this is over 13 years from the FIS database that they looked at uh, information, and they mainly looked at three outcomes, negative appendectomy, perforations, and three-day ED revisits. And what did they find? They, they looked at 52,000 kids with appy. The ultrasound rate increased by 50%, uh, close to 50%, with the CT decline in about the same percent. Um, while the negative appendectomies trended down, there was no statistical difference, and perforations and ED visits remained stable. I'll show you this in a table form. It's just kind of easier to see. You see that trend, at least in um, negative appendectomies and as well as the other two things, perforations and readmissions, stay the same. So it looks like ultrasounds may be even better than CAT scan. So we can image wisely, we can safely make the diagnosis without giving kids cancer. Um, and I think that's really the take home message from this study is we're getting better at ultrasound. We're, I actually think in 10 years from now, instead of stethoscopes around our neck, we're gonna have like ultrasound machines that fit into our smartphones. And when you think a kid has a murmur, you're just gonna plug that in and say, oh, there you go, it's PPS, right? So we'll watch for that. I don't know if all, I'm not, I don't, I'm not Nostradamus, I don't know if all my predictions are gonna come true, but. <laughs> Trimming the fat, a butcher or hospitalist, these really, there's some major opportunities here for addressing another epidemic in our country, which is obesity. So this is from uh, Dr. King et al. looking at, again, obesity in hospitalized children from October last year. What do we know? O obesity is a huge problem. It's become a sort of uh, quality metric in the outpatient setting, but not so much in the inpatient setting. This is a single center, but they looked at BMIs for overweight and obese uh, patients and did a chart review. They looked at 300 charts. They found it was actually only identified 8% of the time. And of those, only 4% of the time was it addressed in the plan and typically by the attending. So residents, get on this. <laughs> So we need to think more about obesity. Is it a burden or is this really an opportunity for QI and scholarship and educational targeting, specifically for trainees? So this is, a, this is from the ivory tower to the surrounding fortresses of care. This is a great quality improvement project that started in a primary children's hospital and spread to seven community hospitals, looking at uh, QI for asthma inpatient care. So from pediatrics last year by Dr. Nkoy et al. And they, in general, there's about 700,000 asthma admissions um, per year across the country. That's from 2009. But there's really gaps in what are the best asthma uh, care practices. And a lot of inpatient QI projects haven't shown much improvement in these outcomes. So this, again, as I said, is a, a rollout program. It's the Intermountain Health System, where they had baseline asthma care, qual uh, quality care at the children's hospital. And there really needs to be multidisciplinary implementation. You have to have leadership buy-in. You've got to have champions of these programs. You got to have education and training across all sectors of healthcare professionals, nurses, etc., and integration of tools into workflow. A care pathway sucks if no one uses it. So what they looked at was, um, I'm sorry for this word, wordy slide, but it's important to know how many aspects to their quality improvement uh, model they had. They had assessment and treatment tools for both acute and chronic uh, asthma. They had algorithms for how to escalate oxygen and albuterol, and they used criteria for when you should consult your pulmonologist or allergist. And they used a template checklist, which actually included the written asthma action plan. And then they also had an algorithm-based uh, adjustment for controller medications. 
So about 3,500 kids from the primary children's hospital, and since it rolled out to the community hospitals after, a little less uh, patient uh, load from there, but we saw compliance with this care process model. Uh, over 90% process reliability at the primary children's hospital that was sustained for a five-year period, as well as within six months, those uh, community hospitals ramping up to almost you know 90% compliance with this care process model. So great reliability here. What did they find? Well, the Children's Hospital found a statistically significant decrease in readmission. Both found a decrease in the length of stay. And there were also trends towards using less uh, money, but not statistically. And the relative resource, you know, if we, it, it, this, is, uh, this shows 22.3 versus 22.9, so it went up slightly. And the, the reason for that is that they didn't have a lot of quality going on at the, at the community hospitals. So I think there's a little bit of activation costs involved in that, but then that's going to spread out if they do quality improvement across other um, diseases. So the important here is about disseminating quality improvement issues. This is really, actually, if any of you follow the AAP value in pediatrics, this is really the, the linchpin of their success, which has been involving multiple institutions and in rolling out best practices. And it shows us that it's not just your written asthma action plan, but it's a process improvement that causes, that results in better and sustained outcomes in asthma. Our care is better than yours, right? Hospitals always want to compare themselves. So we'll look at quality measures in pediatrics. And this was from pediatrics uh, in August last year, looking at differences between uh, hospital quality improvement metrics. So it's, it's used really in the consumerism idea, right, For, uh, in terms of hospitals wanting to say, we're the best children's hospital, you know, that kind of thing. But um, looking at both accountability as quality improvement and competition are reasons that we measure uh, quality. And it's unclear which hospitals and states actually have enough discharges per diagnosis. Are they powered enough to look at each other or to compare themselves to each other uh, to find out who's the better performer? So this is um, from the kids inpatient database. They looked at almost 4,000 hospitals across 44 states. They looked at all condition markers, so something like adverse drug events or uh, satisfaction, as well as condition-specific things like sickle cell disease or seizures. And they looked at the number of hospitals with the discharge volume that met the power standard to detect outliers unrelated to chance. So there's not any, there's no previous data to really to figure out what should be your metric. So they chose 20% difference, which is what most clinical studies look for in terms of um, uh, making the, those comparisons. So they found actually, so hospitals were pretty good with adverse drug events and care not excellent. So anybody who was unsatisfied with their care in terms of powering to detect a difference. So 95 and 87% for those all, uh, those uh, across all hospitals. And, but when you, there were sort of some things that fell in the middle in terms of asthma, mental health, and uh, birth trauma. But things like sickle cell or seizures or heart surgery, you can't compare hospitals. You can't say we're the best heart surgery hospital. It's just there's, no, uh, there, there's not enough uh, discharges to be able to make those distinctions. So it's kind of, it's a really, if you read this paper, it's a really complex paper. But the bottom line is one size and measure doesn't fit all. Uh, we have to be wary of those single diagnosis measures, like sickle cell when hospitals are comparing themselves to each other. And think about the power when designing, when designing incentives in pediatrics. 
So bronchiolitis is always such a big topic amongst hospitalists that I have to spend a little time talking about some of the recent advances. So it turns out hypertonic saline is not all it's cracked up to be. So we keep losing things like steroids, albuterol, racemic epinephrine. This is sort of a common pathway. Little studies show some benefit that we do larger trials and look at hospital outcomes, we do meta-analyses, et cetera, and find out that those things just don't work. So the bronchiolitis clinical practice guidelines came out in 2014. They said, hey, consider hypertonic saline, especially for length of stay. There was a couple of recent meta-analyses um, that looked at uh, 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 outcomes for length of stay with hypertonic saline and said, yeah, it looks like it decreases the length of stay. And then additionally, uh, in this past year, there was a randomized controlled trial by Alyssa Silver at Montefiore that showed no difference. So it's like kind of conflicting data. So how do we figure that out? Well, some folks from your hospital as well looked at an association between hypertonic saline and length of stay um, April this year. And they looked at those meta-analyses for heterogeneity amongst the studies. And they found actually there were two studies, particularly from China, where the length of stay is much longer, as well as some uh, patient and treatment specific issues like kids in the hypertonic saline showing up on day of illness five versus kids not in the treatment arm showing up on day two of illness. So they're likely to stay longer. So I want to show this as a funnel plot. Like I'm always trying to learn more about statistics because I find they're really difficult. And a funnel plot is a way in which anything that falls within that funnel has low heterogeneity and, and, and can be used to interpret the information. If you look at these two studies from China, they clearly fall outside of that funnel plot, telling us that there's too much heterogeneity in those studies. And then some of the newer studies that I mentioned in terms of randomized control trials, um, looking at uh, how they f do fit nicely into that funnel plot. So take-home message is it doesn't decrease length of stay unless you're in China. And don't forget practical uh, hypertonic saline concerns like cost, time, energy, bronchospasm. And uh, we'll be interested to see like what's next for bronchiolitis, right? Because it seems like nothing's working. Sticking on that same topic of bronchiolitis, expert schmexpert. So show me some data. A lot of the clinical practice guidelines, in fact, steroids is the only one that's a grade A evidence with strong recommendation to not use steroids with bronchiolitis. But what about um, looking at O2 saturations and also uh, SAT monitoring? And so looking at two studies, the first one study um, from Dr. Cunningham, as well as uh, Dr. McCullough's looking at uh, intermittent versus continuous pulse oximetry in, in JAMA pediatrics. If we dissect these two, if we look specifically at the bids, this is a great study. What they did is they actually took a pulse ox that was reading 90% and made it 94 to the clinician, right? So, so they either used standard pulse ox or they modified it. So you didn't know it was 90, you thought it was 94. And um, what they found was actually, if you had the standard uh, pulse ox, read, you were actually on oxygen longer. And parents actually felt the kids in the modified study looked better. So um, what does this do? It tells us we can trust the 90, which was previously an expert recommendation. Now we have a randomized control trial to really give us information that, you know what, 90% and above is okay. We don't need to put those kids on oxygen. So what about intermittent versus continuous pulse oximetry? So this is a randomized control uh, trial, uh, multi-centered. And, and they looked at, uh, over about a five-year period, um, intermittent versus continuous pulse oximetry. They looked at length of stay, inter uh, and they found intermittent didn't have more testing, didn't have more care, didn't have more PICU or escalation of care. And the impact here really is don't fixate on the pulse ox. It's okay to turn the monitor off and do intermittent uh, checks when kids are off oxygen, okay? So this is specifically for kids not on oxygen. 
So I spent a little bit of my career as an infectious disease doctor, and I'm still waiting for the moment where I have a device like this and I wave it over the patient and I can know everything that's wrong with them and which, what's their viral biome and their, and their bacterial biome, et cetera. The day's not here yet, but we're getting close. So looking at a film array for detecting bloodstream pathogens. So this is from PIDJ uh, May this year, looking at a rapid multiplex uh, PCR for the identification of uh, bloodstream pathogens. So currently, the time from identification to, uh, to, no, to, to the current time to identification of a pathogen once the blood culture is positive is anywhere from 24 to 72 hours. This multiplex can find 24 bugs in one hour, okay? So this is a prospective cohort study over a six month period, and they looked, the outcomes were looking at change in management, and secondarily, they looked at length of stay. What did they find? Of the 117 positive blood cultures, they found 63% pathogens and 37% contaminants. One in, one in five had an antibiotic was started or changed when they found something, like yeast that they had no clue. Um, antimicrobials or antibiotics were stopped or tailored in one in four patients, which means meaningful changes happened in over half the patients, so 54%. And 10% actually had a decreased length of stay. So when you find out it's co negative staph, adios amigo. So rapid diagnostics are going to continue to provide more efficient and quality care. So even in my institution, we're using something that when the blood culture is positive for staff, they can tell us in an hour whether it's MSSA, MRSA, or a non-staph aureus. And that's actually already, for me, impacted uh, two discharges last month and uh, helps us avoid, uh, I think it really fits with antibiotic stewardship as well. So watch for these things in acute gastro. There's a, a product out there from uh, Salt Lake City called the Biofire. It detects like 25 different stool pathogens from bacteria to viruses. Um, watch for RVPs that are going to have you know, viruses and things like pertussis. So for someone like Sean, may also show the, the futility of testing for mycoplasma, right? Um, so watch out for those. I think they're, they're really going to become more commonplace, especially as cost of these tests go down and their rapid implication to how they do affect management. So DEX for flex, you, looking at adjuvant steroid use in uh, septic arthritis. I feel like this, the, the book should be closed on this one, but one more study looking at um, adjuvant therapy in superlative arthritis. This is pediatrics last year from Dr. Fogel et al. And, you know, we know we use steroids in infections. We try to prevent hearing loss and meningitis, right? So for those of you in the, knowing the HIB era, that was very common practice. Uh, there's also two previous randomized controlled trials already showing improvement in septic arthritis, both in efficacy and in outcome. Um, so the methods here is a retrospective cohort, which actually helpful in this case because they could follow patients out to their final clinical point and then exclude the patients who like might have had Lyme arthritis or might have had juvenile idiopathic arthritis. So they're actually able to kind of tailor, uh, tailor the data a little bit that way. Uh, they looked at fever, CRP, length of stay, IV duration, and full recovery. So fever goes away quicker. CRP drops faster. Duration of IV, shorter. Time to full recovery, miraculous. Look at the p-values here in terms of um, how much this actually helps kids. So for me, it's like sometimes you're asked by patients and fans, what would you do for your kid? What if it was your kid? So I would do this for my kid. I, I, I feel comfortable saying that. So what are we waiting for? Let's deck some up. Obviously, there's some limitations to this study being retrospective, but I told you already there are some randomized controlled trials on this topic. But does a pathogen matter? Can versus MRSA, right? Does the joint size matter? Hip versus knee? And I think some of those questions are out there, but um, 
who, where's the burden of proof for that? Uh, does it lie with the naysayers or those of us who want to use DEX? Um, here's a study that I just I added, but it's an older study, but it really it changed my practice tremendously. So uh, especially when you think about Occam's razor and the principles of parsimony, that one the simplest explanation is the best, and one diagnosis for one problem. Maybe it's not so sharp, though. Looking at viral illness in Kawasaki disease, so this is from um, September last year, looking at concurrent respiratory vi uh, viruses in Kawasaki disease. So it... When I was practicing infectious disease, we found adenovirus, we didn't treat Kawasaki. And um, so that was like 10 years ago. Now, it turns out that actually, um, you, you know, from this study, uh, that you can't do that anymore. It's not a good idea. And it, uh, this was over five years, but a single institution, and they looked at kids um, who had respiratory viral panels uh, by PCR. And they looked at 22 patients with Kawasaki disease, 192 of those had testing, and 93 were positive for some virus, mainly rhino enterovirus. There were no differences in both the clinical characteristics between the two groups, the positive RVP and the negative RVP group. And what they did find, though, is in 33% of the patients who had adenovirus, in active viral symptoms like runny nose, uh, they had coronary lesions. So we don't know what causes or triggers Kawasaki disease, but uh, we can no longer say a positive respiratory virus rules out Kawasaki disease. So I think a really practice-changing uh, article for me. UT, I'm not sure how long to treat them. So opportunities for shortening IV therapy in bacteremic UTIs. So this is a study from Dr. Schroeder et al. Uh, looking at the management outcomes in bacteremic UTIs. And this is a, there's really no data on how long we should treat these kids. And they, this is a retrospective study uh, looking across 11 centers in infants less than three months of, months of age. Um, a pretty long time period, but they look specifically at bacteremic UTI, meaning blood and urine pathogen, the same one, typically E. coli. They looked at IV antibiotic duration and predictors, as well as 30-day um, relapse. What did they find? Well, they found that it still turns out we like to choose football scores for our length of therapy, right? 7, 10, and 14. So that's, that's a touchdown and a field goal, right? So, uh, but more importantly, what they found was a lot of practice variation, right? Um, probably a lot of these kids getting, if the 14-day probably uh, means they got their whole course of um, treatment through an through a, a IV. But over 30% had less than five days of treatment. And you can see the mean there falls somewhere at one week. So, um, lots of var practice variability, but the kids who had shorter um, durations uh, did well. So it's okay to treat with sequential IV to PO antibiotics in bacteremic UTIs, different from urosepsis, but bacteremic UTI. And, and, you, and probably we can stop treating these entirely with parenteral antibiotics. The bonus here was this group also used their data and some other uh, uh, data that they pulled in to look at the sensitivity and specificity of the UA, right? The sort of age-old um, thing we say in pediatrics, well, kids have so much urine, they pee so fast, they don't get white blood cells, and they don't always have Luke esterase. So we've been treating a lot of asymptomatic back or uh, asymptomatic bacteria, and um, what they found was actually it's a really high sensitivity in bacteremic UTIs. So you can probably trust your uh, UA there, and it's probably uh, specifically the UA in these young infants. Uh, maybe a way which we think about stratifying for future prospective studies in terms of severity. So. 
This is a guideline we've all been waiting for for a long time, the previously known as Ulti. It's now called Brew. Put up uh, beer and some coffee there so you can remember that the E is silent. It's not brewy, which is what a lot of folks have been saying, but, um, but Brew. And this is Brief Resolved Unexplained Events, former, formerly known as uh, Ulti. And uh, looking at the evaluation of kids who present to the hospital with both uh, um, uh, the, uh, what was formerly known as, as ALTI, and this is from May this, this year, uh, clinical practice guidelines. So, you know, the background is we used to call it ALTI. There was also, uh, it was a big uh, win when we finally had an ICD-9 code uh, placeholder for ALTI uh, just not that long ago. This guideline itself has really broad committee representation. So we see um, uh, both university uh, folks and community folks um, it, on this guideline, we also see general pediatrics, we see emergency department, uh, cardiology and infectious disease doctor, GI, palm, genetics, neuro um, abuse doctors, right, uh, and epidemiologists. So they did a comprehensive review of all the literature on ALTI from 1970 to 2014, so quite a task. And the guideline actually uh, is presented with different levels of evidence support as most CPGs are. This is what it looks like in print. Um, Oftentimes I have like on this on my phone or iPad or those kinds of things so I can zoom in and, and see what I'm looking at. Uh, but I think this is something that you should have familiarity with. The residents probably, is, if you carry around a binder with your protocols and things in it, it's something that you can uh, keep handy for yourself. Uh, breaking it down is really the first step is looking at um, are they well now? So, uh, you know, ulti means it's, uh, and brew means that it's resolved, right? So the patient has to look well. If they don't look well, they don't meet the um, guideline criteria. And, and also that was brief, um, less than one change in either breathing, color, tone, responsiveness. And if you don't find an obvious diagnosis, like the kids got bronchiolitis or those kinds of things, um, then you can call it a brew. Uh, step two is looking at whether you're high or low risk. So low risk is you're over uh, two months of age. Uh, you have There was no CPR given to you at the time. It was less than one minute. It's the first time that it's ever happened. Uh, you're greater than 32 uh, weeks in your gestational age, uh, greater than 45 weeks with no social or, or sort of subtle concerns that you pick up. And then it's in scope of the practice guideline. So really low risk kids with, with bruise. Um, what, is it, what do we know is you should teach CPR training. So actually at our institution, we have little DVDs with little dolls, and there's a validated way to, to sort of teach CPR, so parents can go home, they can review it again versus a one-day course in CPR, uh, but CPR is recommended for families so they can feel empowered, and then um, well, also the things that we can consider is pertussis, so that's on the rise, we've seen uh, much more pertussis across the country in the last couple years, almost shut down the Super Bowl, and of course, the outbreaks in places like Disney World, um, and then, and you can consider brief observation, but you can also consider sending the kids home from the emergency department. What you should not do is most of the labs. Um, the kids probably don't need cardiorespiratory monitoring, um, uh, looking, uh, antacids or anti-epileptic medications, um, and you probably don't need to do uh, other things like admit just for monitoring and, ki and kids. So one of the things this, this guideline does is it really sets up the stage for us to um, improve our care of kids by decreasing unnecessary tests, improving outcomes, and really unifying our approach to kids who present with this problem to the hospital. So no more ALTI, uh, start calling it brew.
And actually, I spoke really fast. So I was uh, worried I wouldn't have enough time to get through all of those. So I guess I would open it up for questions, though. Um, uh, I appreciate your time. your first question and, and how would you advise folks to try to keep pace with 177,000 articles a year <laughs> given that you sort of went through a yeah, I didn't review all of them, obviously. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I think one of the ways we do that, we stay up to date, we go to conferences, you know, you, um, I, one of the things I do is I use the NCBI, so I have certain mesh terms and areas that I focus in on, specifically uh, things like hospital medicine, but it is really difficult, and I think um, if you look at just, the, if, if I showed you the bibliography, you'd see pediatrics really, uh, for at least for hospital medicine, is where most everything that um, was published, so I think if you're reading pediatrics or at least previewing the table of contents now that it's no longer actually in the journal, so they're really moving to uh, uh, electronic base. I think that's probably where, where I think most of the great articles and practice-changing articles for hospital medicine are coming out. So I think you're pretty safe using that, and I like JAMA Pediatrics too. So I think there's some core journals that you can sort of try to stay fresh on, but yeah, it is, it's a difficult and time-consuming. But Our other option is to invite Michael. <laughs> Thanks, Paul. So, Great. Jolene uh, on the Grand Committee, I always get a first dibs. Um, I'm just, I was really interested in your process. So how do you go, you're invited to do this. Yeah. Are you, um, is there some guideline of how you're supposed to select articles? Yeah. It's handed down from generation to generation. So the two people who do it the year before are sort of your mentors for that year. Um, what we did, so Michelle and I, what we did was we actually um, looked at all the core journals and reviewed all of the table of contents, picked out articles that way, and then we reviewed those abstracts. And if they met, if we thought they were good articles, we reviewed the whole article. Um, so we did that for probably about 15 different articles or 15 different journals. And then we used the mesh term for pediatrics for a lot of the adult journals like New England Journal. BMJ, etc., so that we would just look at the pediatric articles within those uh, journals. And um, then we sort of categorize into different groupings, right? So this one fits with GI, so by systems in some ways or by problems. And uh, then we individually sort of went through like the 20 articles, say, in uh, you know gastro and pick the juice article, for instance. So try to find like an anchor article within different areas uh, that makes the most sense. And then, of course, you come up with weight. You know, it used to be called the top 10. Right, and so I clearly reviewed more than ten articles. Um, so I think you end up with more articles than you think, and you just have to keep cutting down um, to get to that process of finding the top articles. And um, even for this, you know, I, I cut out a couple articles and added a couple different ones that I thought would have more broad-based appeal, like the peanut allergy and things like that, which we didn't present because it's not necessarily a hospital-based topic. But I think it's a huge, huge issue in uh, pediatrics that uh, requires uh, our, our attention. And so thank you for the question. Um, thank you. I love the whirlwind tour. Um, one of the articles that you presented, I have not read, um, the one about Kawasaki. Yes. Um, and I came to a different conclusion just based on what the data that you presented, yeah. which was that um, that adenovirus, specifically if you find adenovirus, yeah. um, then don't roll out Kawasaki. But what was the other, was that true for other um 
Yeah, so they so they drilled in on the ADNO to fight to look at the coronary artery changes. Um, in terms of the clinical characteristics, so they weren't different, um, and kids who had other viruses still had Kawasaki, but they didn't look uh, virus specifically for coronary changes. Uh, the reason they did that though is because ADNO's always been the classic mimicker of Kawasaki, right? And one of the things they also particularly looked at was whether or not you had active viral symptoms, because there was another paper in pediatrics that says uh, trying to distinguish between somebody who's just shedding rhinovirus after the like six when they had it like you know two and a half months ago versus somebody who has an active viral infection does that change your decision making around Kawasaki and uh, that was a great paper and it tried to argue that there are clinical characteristics that you can use for active viral infection, but it turns out you can have, have them concurrently, which is sort of why I said Occam's razor are not so sharp, right? Which is the idea that it's, it's, you, you may just, like when we talk about RSV and having UTIs, right? Like it may just be happening uh, at the same time. Uh, and what they did find that was interesting was over the winter months, you were mo much more likely to have a concurrent viral illness. So it may be that it's a trigger, it may be that it's concurrent, it's just not clear. And I think the bottom line is, is that the practice typically was if you found adenovirus, it's not Kawasaki. Um, I still use exudative pharyngitis as an exclusion factor for me in Kawasaki. Uh, I don't know I don't know about that anymore either because I, when I would see that, I'd be like, oh, most people forget to look in the throat, right? And when I'd see that, I'd be like, oh, it's not Kawasaki. This is viral pharyngitis and a, and a viral disease. But I, what, what's interesting, especially if you look at the data on Kawasaki, both in terms of the electron microscopy of the, and then also PCR for uh, RNA viruses, novel RNA virus, we don't know the name of it, et cetera. They're finding those things in addition to like things like single nucleotide polymorphisms and genetic predispositions. You know, it used to be thought also to as like um, carpet cleaning detergent or whatever was associated with Kawasaki, that's prob probably also not necessarily true, right? Uh, but So we're always trying to find those associations, but what we are seeing is there's clearly some kind of host pathogen interaction that causes it. And um, it may be that either uh, some of these viruses found are still shedding and actually did trigger it, and some are just concurrent and maybe having nothing to do with it. Um, but uh, it's interesting, right, because uh, it's really a practice changing for me. And this is, this is an article in a series of couple articles that helped me make that decision. Um, there was another one in PIDJ a while back as well that really looked at um, these concurrent viral illnesses, and, and everything really points to, hey, you can't, you can't use it to, to rule it out anymore. Yeah. So, sucks, right? <laughs> the, um, the article that you spoke about with the melatonin and the age. Yeah. What was the age that they used the melatonin? Because I find that one to eighteen years of age. Okay, so even as little as one. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting. I don't think we know enough about the dose of melatonin. They chose three milligrams, which is sort of like a standard dose. Um, some people argue things like 300 micrograms might be a better dose, too. So I think we'll start to see more um, studies on, on the dose specifically. <laughs> but it's otherwise a pretty, it's pretty safe and effective uh, in, terms of, in terms of that. But it was a wide age range. Yeah. Dr. Klein. Michael, that was wonderful. Thank you. Um, I retired about a year ago, so now I'm feeling much better. <laughs> uh, just two brief comments and questions that, that go with it. One is the allergy piece. Yeah. Although, you know, it's obvious we used to avoid it. It was a card-carrying allergist. Out. Now it seems like that which doesn't destroy us makes us stronger. But, and here's the button. 
Why if you really have a strong family history, I, particularly on both sides with peanut yeah. allergy, I would not want to be uh, too bold on giving peanut, and I think you really do need to follow your advice to uh, to contact an allergist at yeah. that point in time. You might say skin testing, but skin testing is ineffective in an early child, so it's really hard, and the IQ yeah. levels are very low, and yet the risk can be higher. So there still is that gray area that yeah. is difficult. Yeah, great uh, comments too. You know, I mean, the study was precipitated by what was found between two different Jewish populations living, one I think in Syria and one in Israel, where in Syria, I forget if those exact countries, but we're all, all eating this peanut uh, popcorn stuff or whatever. And so they found, it was really just because they thought, well, the genetics are the same, but why aren't those kids having peanut allergies? And so I think the researchers uh, recognizing that kids who were at risk. So these were kids with eczema, with egg allergy. And, um, and, uh, and your point about skin prick testing is important, but at least they weren't using immune globulins or something, right, which would be unhelpful in kids that age, especially maternal. But, um, but I think you're, it's going to take some time for that practice to catch up as well. But what it, in, the, in the second caveat, which I mentioned too, is that it doesn't nullify allergy, right? There's still 3% of kids who have allergy. And, um, and I guess it's also going to be a problem for allergists if it's overwhelming that every kid who's at risk has to do this process under you know the guidance of an allergist that's a that's a lot of patients to see yeah and, and just one last really quick thing uh, when you compare hospitals and quality yeah uh, what bugs me in these articles from the u.s news and the others is you have all those uh, data points given but then a huge part of the the evaluation is done on the reputation of the hospital and so more than 20% of it goes to the reputation. So you take certain hospitals that have right. very good reputations and have always had very good reputations, and they are really off the charts. Yeah. And yet when you compare the actual quality, there's not that much difference. Right, yeah, I mean, both of our institutions fall under their shadow, right? <laughs> Thanks. I think that's an excellent Great. Note. Thank you guys. <laughs> Thank you. Great.